Hello and welcome back to the Politics of Race in American Film, a podcast from the US Centre at the London School of Economics. I'm Dr. Clive James Nwonka, a fellow in film studies in the Department of Sociology at the LSC. In this episode, we're exploring architecture, creativity and transition in the films Patterson and The Last Black Man in San Francisco, chronicling a week in the life of Patterson, played by Adam Driver, and with an intertextual debt to the work of the poet William Carlos Williams, the film investigates the spatial and temporal dimensions of creativity, architecture, and social encounter articulated through the experiences of a bus driver and amateur poet in Patterson, New Jersey. The Last Black Man in San Francisco looks specifically at issues of gentrification, displacement, and belonging. Here, the film examines travel, movement, and exploration of the city as a site of racial struggle as well as conviviality. Thinking both textually and contextually, we'll consider what these films articulate about race, racism, and displacement in terms of architecture, the city, populations, and how these articulations map onto current debates around gentrification in racial terms in the US. Joining me to talk about these issues of racial erasure, housing, architecture, and space are two scholars and colleagues, Dr. Suzanne Hall and Dr. Austin Zeidemann. Dr. Suzanne Hall is an Associate Professor in Sociology and Co-Director of the Cities Programme in the LSC's Department of Sociology. She is an interdisciplinary urban scholar and has practiced as an architect in South Africa. Her research and teaching interests explore the racialized frameworks of citizenship, economic inequality, and their everyday contestations. Dr. Austin Zeidemann is Associate Professor in the Department of Geography and Environment here at the LSC. He is an interdisciplinary scholar who specializes in ethnographic methods with an emphasis on Latin America and the Caribbean, as well as the United States. Austin's research and teaching focuses primarily on cities and urbanism, race and racism, environment and infrastructure, and security and violence. Today, we're discussing architecture, creativity, and transition in the films Patterson and The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Thank you both for joining me today. Hi, Clive. Great to be here. So we are thinking around two films that emerged within a short space of time that both from different perspectives deal with the same phenomenon which is the questions of spatiality and geography and architecture within the multicultural environment. So The Last Black Man in San Francisco looks at questions of race, displacement, gentrification within the city. And the other film, Patterson, which looks at the experiences of a bus driver who navigates the city while writing poetry. And um, I'm interested from both your perspectives on how we think around the films as a cityscape, but also thinking around the films as a method and a mode of understanding racialization within the city. So I want to begin with you, Susie. What were your initial impressions when watching the film, thinking around these questions of the city, racialization and space? I guess, Clive, that intuitively my response to both films was really about an immersion in a kind of gentleness of storytelling, um, where in, in both films, the tones, the sound, the pace, 
the rhythmic quality, the laden atmospheres are all slowed down. And that slowing down allows you a very close relation with one or two characters in each of the films. And it allows you to understand their deeply emotional experiences of their attachment to place. And so I was really intrigued because my inclination is towards ethnography and, and towards these kind of human experiences of, of knowing and understanding the world, how that is achieved in film. And I, I think it's very hard to achieve this kind of slowness in, in writing, but in the rhythm of filmmaking, it seems to just open up this incredible possibility for you to feel quite close to characters quite quickly into the film. So just to begin with, for me, that is the first offering that the film has as a, as a method is the proximity to human experience. Austin, what were your first impressions? Well, thanks, Clive. I mean, for me, I had seen both films before and hadn't really thought of them together before. So I think rewatching them on, on your, your suggestion initially struck me as the, the kind of the power of the juxtaposition of, of watching them together. And for me, first of all, that juxtaposition came together because I have happened to have personal connections with both cities, having lived in the San Francisco Bay Area for over a decade earlier on in life and having had two two grandparents and, and a parent who were, were from Patterson, New Jersey. So to sort of put these two together was, was interesting for me from, from the get-go. But then watching them, I found that both films kind of surprisingly for me, uh, as you've already put it, fundamentally touch on issues of urban transformation and race in, in the United States. And I think the way I might put it even to, to sort of rephrase it, is that both films really touch on what we might call the shifting contours of whiteness or white supremacy alongside the reconfiguration of the American city. And that really only came out for me in watching them kind of side by side. Now, there are, of course, two really different cities, right? Patterson and San Francisco. And yet they both represent kind of processes of urban transformation that, among other things, have a lot to do with, to, to do with race. So to put it in sort of crude terms of, of kind of epidermal terms, the sort of whitening of San Francisco and the darkening of Patterson. Now that theme is sort of central to The Last Black Man in San Francisco, obviously, even in its very title. But in Patterson, that's, I think, much more implicit in a way. Looking at all of Patterson, the characters, kind of everyday interactions and kind of who he is in relationship to all these other people that he comes across either on the bus or in his personal life. So juxtaposing the two films, it seems to me like, you know, what sort of struck me uh, was how you might even like think of Patterson. Uh, you could think of an alternative title to it, which might be like the last white man in Patterson. And to see those two films together in that sense. And of course, there's the, for me, the really big contrast being a kind of last white man in Patterson feels pretty okay, right? He's got a public sector job. He feels like he, he always belongs. Everyone is really nice and supportive um, of him. He has a, a pretty nice house. He has time to dedicate to poetry. 
but of course, as, as last black man in San Francisco makes um, really clear, being the last black man in the city, as Jimmy and, and Mont kind of emphasize, um, feels pretty, pretty sh**. So I think that, that's what really struck me, kind of seeing them side by side and also seeing them in the context of, of this podcast. That's a really, really, really fascinating um, insight there. Particularly, you mentioned the inherent whiteness of San Francisco, the inherent non-whiteness of Patterson, yet um, both identities exist in different ways. There is something very, very acceptable about Patterson's uh, ventures through the city. And one thing I observed um, almost instantly upon watching the film for the first time in 2016 was that all of Patterson's engagements throughout the film are with people of colour. Uh, by the one time I think he has a conversation with a schoolgirl uh, momentarily, from the ending where he meets the Asian person who kind of gives him the book, from his engagements at the bar with um, African Americans, his home life and domestic situation with his girlfriend, his work colleagues. Um, there is something about the film taking us through a voyage of the multicultural ideal, which is Patterson. But equally, it's a very, very homogenous identity. But even within that, we see Patterson as the white person being the structural logic or the structural identity within Patterson. I mean, Susie, what was your impressions of that particular aspect of the film, the structuring logic of Patterson? I mean, for me, the, the film really begs the question, what does it mean to make a home and to retain a home? And I think in Patterson, what is a real achievement uh, of the film is that it reveals for us the unremarkable possibilities of, of social and cultural overlap. And that these possibilities, these really crucial possibilities, are sustained through the commonplace and through routine. But it also makes you realize that routine is in fact a privilege, that to occupy and, and inhabit and enclaim a space through the routines of work, through bus routes, through the habits of writing, you need to have a sense of innate security in terms of how you belong. And so Patterson is able to occupy this very stable, very routine, very commonplace uh, existence precisely because he has this innate ontological security. Um, this is almost the, the diametric opposite in the making of The Last Black Man in San Francisco, where we're still addressing the question of what does it mean to claim a space? But here the prospects of security are, are absolutely denied. And so what is left is then to inhabit space through an imaginative prospect, to kind of live within a room and imagine what that room could be and what you could be like in that room in the future. So I think just in the two different rhythms of, of filmmaking and in the innate consideration of stability. One is a luxury that is offered to Patterson and the other is a structural impossibility that is absolutely denied to Jimmy and Mont. That's a really, really interesting 
analysis of the, the key differences between both identities, what is permissible and acceptable and almost allowed in terms of inhabiting one particular space, then on the other side of the nation, another space going through a quite rapid but equally still elongated process of change where the identities there are not allowed to be within this creative existence, are not allowed to be within this new idea of the urban multiculture, but are ostracised from that um, demographic in society in quite vicious ways. And something I see a lot in your work, Susie, um, is this significance of the mundane, the significance of the everyday, um, as, as worthy of analysis as the spectacular, as the significant in everyday encounters. And um, a term you used um, just in uh, that moment, the ontology, I'm thinking about the ontology of transcendence. There is something around Patterson who is able to transcend these differences of identity, these differences around the cityscape as well, in very, very seamless ways. Whereas in The Last Black Man in San Francisco, uh, both Jimmy and Montgomery are met with contestation, with laceration, every time they step out of their confinements within the city. I mean, Austin, thinking around the city within both films as a kind of scope, as a kind of form of laceration when one steps outside these kind of boundaries. Do you see similarities in Susie's analysis there? Yeah, absolutely, I do. Um, to not, I don't want to make too much of the, the titles, but since I've already um, mentioned the, the titles, to think through sort of Patterson, I guess, the title of the film, and of course also the name of, of the character, we're talking about Patterson, New Jersey, a city that, you know, in a sense, long ago became what some call, you know, somewhat problematically a majority minority city, uh, right? And and yet at the same time, the white guy and the city are still identical, right? His name and the city are one and the same. It's still his city at some symbolic or structural level, which I think could be read as an interesting commentary on kind of whiteness or on white privilege or on white supremacy, or specifically how it is maintained or maintains itself in the face of major challenges to it or in the face of major demographic change or other kinds of change or even um, social and political mobilization. So in a sense, you might see it as, as a kind of commentary on, on that. To pick up, Clive, as you, as you put it, um, you use the term kind of the, the sort of laceration and explicitly kind of violent bodily um, term around in relationship to the city and the other thing that really that really struck me uh, knowing you know a little bit about the history of patterson more through kind of personal stories than anything else but nevertheless it's it's quite present in in my mind one thing that is is quite present and what most people know about patterson is its relationship to reuben hurricane carter the boxer who was uh, imprisoned for a triple homicide that took place in the 1960s that then became uh, a very famous case of, of basically wrongful incarceration as the judge who who um, eventually freed hurricane carter put it it was based on racism and not reason so you know patterson is famous for that kind of iconically violent and racialized moment of, of extreme kind of um, injustice and and yet the the one scene that I really that really kind of 
um, stood out to me in relationship to that is actually kind of a, uh, a banal scene in a way. It's the scene in the bar where, where Everett, um, this guy pulls out a gun and Patterson then disarms him and the gun turns out to be fake. And when, when I initially saw the, the film, I think it must have been around 2016 or so, it's not that long after the case of Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old African-American boy killed in Cleveland uh, by a white police officer. And Rice himself was carrying a toy gun, right, carrying a replica gun, and the police officer shot him immediately. So here it's all much more civil. It's all it's even playful, right? Patterson sort of disarms him. There's no real violence. Everyone just sort of goes on their way. But Patterson still comes out the hero. And in fact, Everett's love interest, who sort of provokes his desperate action, says, thanks, Patterson. That was heroic. That was very heroic, she says. And then uh, Das, the bartender, delivers a brilliant kind of line that then undercuts Patterson's heroism. But nevertheless, that sort of um, trope of, of a certain kind of um, white savior dynamic is, is still, you know, sort of hanging there. But so is the, the you know, the very real alternative to, to what happens when an African-American man or even 12-year-old boy pulls out a, a toy gun in public. Yeah, that was one of the um, observations that I made um, in the film, obviously not as eloquently as um, you did, but it, it speaks to kind of both the, I guess, multidisciplinary nature of both your work that thinks much beyond the environment as the only form of understanding uh, cultural difference. There is something in that bar scene uh, where Patterson engages with aspects of black culture and subculture. Music, for instance, is very, very prominent in those bar scenes and the repetition of going to the bar every single day and embracing black culture. There is a way that Patterson's involvement and imbrication in blackness is very, very uncontested, unconflicted. Even in that moment you mentioned where he um, apprehends his friend uh, with a toy gun, whereas in Last Black Man in San Francisco, there is a constant need for blackness to define itself, to be recognized, even amongst uh, liberal whiteness that we see around San Francisco. And Susie, I want to kind of bring you in now as well, because thinking around the city as a space of contestation, a space of conflict between different identities around the same space. We are seeing in both films this idea of the city as a creative city, as a cultural city. So in Patterson, we see the reliance on William Carlos Williams' epic poetry, and that is inscribed throughout the film as Patterson's own creative process. He takes us through the kind of city while reciting um, his poetry. Whereas on the other side of the country, we see Jimmy and Montgomery preparing for this performance in their occupied house. And there is something in those two creative processes that also produce some kind of displacement, some kind of exceptionalism. Montgomery and Jimmy shouldn't be in San Francisco performing the way they are because they aren't part of this new creative city which is on the edge of Silicon Valley, on the edge of Oakland, on the edge of this new transformation. I mean, Susie, thinking around 
contestation within the idea of creativity, who is allowed to be involved in creativity in the city. What were your observations of that dynamic? And I'm really glad you brought in the creative process because I think, I think just to start with the last black man in San Francisco, it, there is laceration, but there is also lyricism. And I think that is an incredibly important articulation of personhood that can't be wholly robbed by the system. And so I think there is a a laden atmosphere, a kind of really thick interior life of the film where these 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 interior spaces are absolutely acquired, if not in the pocket, then in the minds of these two young people who use the space to really provoke their imaginations of what they can do in the space, uh, how they'd like to interact with others, and how they'd like to be. And I think, you know, in the tradition of that line of thinking, recent writers like Catherine McKittrick turn us to the, the need to put the lyricism and the laceration side by side and not to allow always the laceration be the thing that defeats our analysis of personhood. So I think, you know, San Francisco is very much a city of, of decommissioned work and of decommissioned people. It's explicitly a city in which racial banishment is occurring. But nonetheless, there is this innate kind of repository of, of creativity that is not defeated by the system. And I think there are, there are just these extraordinary moments inside the house that Jimmy imagines his grandfather has built, which is all about making, building. And I think, you know, Jimmy's not interested in the idea of ownership. He's not interested in the idea that his grandfather might have owned the house. He's interested in the idea that his grandfather might have built it. And so I think it commands us to think through in analytic terms and in human terms, what does it mean to build and claim in a context of deep repression? Even listening to that now and thinking around the politics of race and space and belonging, uh, both in the film and in Patterson and San Francisco, and trying to draw comparisons between this idea of belonging and maybe his claim to the house, his claim to the legacy within his family of the building and creation of something monolithic within the city is also his claim to belonging as a citizen of San Francisco that's being contested and denied and displaced. And of course, in Patterson, there's something much more seamless around Patterson's sense of belonging and place and claim on the city of Patterson. And um, just thinking about, again, the points you make around the spectacular and familiar um, around both films in many respects, but particularly Patterson, and the idea that Patterson is always in transit. He is always moving constantly throughout the film, whether it's the repetition of the day-to-day, -day, whether it's walking from his home to the bus station where he walks, or writing and reciting poetry, he walks through the kind of city, or walking his dog to the bar. There is a daily requirement for him to be constantly in motion, always in transit. And it takes the viewer 
or the spectator through an almost touristic gaze of the city and these everyday, quite mundane encounters. But again, there is something around Patterson's existence and state of belonging in the film that is never contested, never challenged, never scrutinized. And again, as you mentioned, Austin, how does this kind of speak to a broader politics of race and space and belonging in America? I think the, the question of, of the, the kinds of mobility that you see in play here is, is a really interesting, interesting question. Um, of course, on the one hand, the mobility of somebody like Jimmy is a, is a forced mobility, right? It's an outcome of a certain kind of long historical legacy of, of racism and its effects on the ability of, of making place or of something like home ownership. On the other hand, he's a skater, right? And I'm not, <laughs> I don't pretend to, to know much about um, kind of skate culture, but certainly friends who, who, who do, you know, would make a really strong and impassioned case for the kind of politics and ethics, and which is a very much of spatial nature of, of skating and the ways in which it has carved out, similarly to uh, what Susie has been saying about creativity, kind of spaces of anti-racism or spaces of anti-racist um, practice or, or, or work to be done um, within cities. So I think that's, that's important to the ways, you know, to the kinds of mobility that you see in Last Black Man in San Francisco. There, there are different kinds of mobility happening at the same time, and they have different kinds of um, racial political inflections. The other thing that I wanted to just pick up on, um, which in some sense kind of relates to uh, the point about building and about creating and creativity is that, of course, in, in the United States, like many other places, and especially in California, you have the, the very infrastructure, the very material basis of, of society built by racialized labor forces historically. And as, as Danny Glover's character reminds Mont and, and Jimmy, you know, we built these ships, we dredged these canals. And of course, you know, that goes that goes on to the railroads, it goes on to, to housing, it goes to so many material infrastructural dimensions of kind of California, both rural and urban material life. And of course, they've been systematically over centuries locked out of home ownership. And so I think there's again that um, claim in in the, the sort of theatrical performance of belonging and of ownership of, of the house that is about whether or not it actually gets activated or you know realized or not it's about i think that claim or you know the recognition of of a long history of, of creativity and of building um, without which the city san francisco or um, even the, the whole state of california would really not exist in the way that it that it does so i think that's that's underlying kind of the the, the film for me I think also um, what I observed with this very, very strong political commentary and undertone to both those films in very, very different ways. Um, I remember a quite distinctive early scene where the town crier, if you will, was standing um, in front of the bay and um, proclaiming around the city council's response to the pollution of the bay which was never a particular issue for them in terms of response. 
until we saw the mass gentrification of whiteness into the city and the overspill of um, Silicon Valley and the tech um, demographic. So we're seeing the city as a policy and different responses to different people based on different momentums of, I guess, neoliberalism and what that um, invokes as well. So there's something around the value of the city and how value is ascribed to different people based on different, almost economic interests. Is that something you also observed as well, Susie? Oh, explicitly. I mean, I think the increments of value resonate profoundly in both films. I think in the first instance, Patterson has this affordance of an uncontested mobility precisely because he works in the public sector and has a home. And what is really evident in the San Francisco story is who is first in the line of fire in terms of retrenchments from stable jobs and who is first in the line of fire from mortgage repayments, etc. And the racial injuries in, in those processes are absolutely immense. So that's one way of structurally valuing or devaluing on racial grounds. But I think, like you say, Clive, it, it becomes um, kind of acutely tangible in the film when we see affluent populations moving in, populations who are more explicitly white, uh, and they get recognized in policy terms as being people who find it difficult to breathe polluted air. or So that process of recognition is something that only occurs when, when privilege comes into play. Recognition doesn't seem to be a process that policy is prone to uh, when we're talking about uh, innate human needs. It's much more about a privileging process. I mean, I think the term privilege is quite central to both films, but in very, very implicit ways. As you mentioned, Austin, um, Patterson has a kind of assumed privilege um, as he walks through the kind of city that is never contested or challenged um, in various different examples, be it apprehending his colleague or simply kind of um, driving a bus and being the hero uh, various different situations, uh, which is not obviously available to um, either Montgomery or Jimmy. Um, there is something interested, um, interesting sorry, in that scene uh, at the beginning of Last Batman in San Francisco where Jimmy Montgomery arrive at the house and um, the owner, uh, the white woman is there and she refers to him in a very, very liberal way such as, what's your deal, man? What are you doing here? And it really kind of refer to the idea of San Francisco, this kind of convivial, um, unqualified, liberal city where everyone is included um, in a particular way. And there is something around that unexplored privilege, which also creates a dissonance and a lack of understanding around the impact and significance of racialized gentrification and racialized displacement across all of America. And I'm interested both in your thoughts on this, um, Austin and Susie, but equally is how useful is film uh, from both your different perspectives in unpicking and uncovering and displaying those kinds of spatial inequalities. Austin. Hmm. I mean, the one thing that comes to mind for me is, is to compare the film Patterson to the last kind of major film that featured the city, at least 
that I know of, which is the, the 1989 film Lean on Me, um, starring Morgan Freeman. And that film was based on uh, somewhat, you know, re real events. It was based on actually the high school that, that my dad went to and graduated from long before that. But it was about in a sense, a kind of profoundly racist depiction of a major of what had become a majority African American high school called Patterson East Side, that according to the narrative of the film, left on its own, developed into kind of complete and utter chaos. And that is until a kind of violent and authoritarian principal comes in or head teacher comes in and sets things right. And that's the Morgan Freeman character uh, who in, in in real life was, was somebody called Joe Clark. So, you know, in, in a sense, that was kind of Patterson and the, the, the kind of urban transformations that it represented, which are similar urban transformations to kind of post-industrial Detroit, Philadelphia, you know, many other cities um, in, in the United States, seen kind of from the sort of white privileged suburb in a way, the kind of dystopian, you know, view of the urban inner city that we now see, you know, very much um, still has a, has a certain kind of currency in, in American kind of mainstream political discourse. And that film, in a sense, kind of plays, plays right into it. Now, compared to that, I think just to, to sort of, in a sense, take a, a more generous reading of, of this Patterson film, it's in a sense a much more hopeful vision of what the city of Patterson has become and through its kinds of changes. Now, we can say, we, and, and I think it's right to, to, in a sense, kind of question the degree to which that hopeful vision or that kind of, in a sense, kind of post-racial or multicultural um, utopia of the film Patterson is told from this position of privilege. It's essentially from the white guy's perspective, but nevertheless, if kind of compared to other sort of filmic representations of sort of American inner city, and especially in, in particular of a city like Patterson, um, I think it's it's worth sort of, in a sense, kind of giving it credit for presenting a certain kind of, you know, a different kind of vision, even if that we may think that vision is, is quite, you know, unfaithful to, to the reality of kind of racial politics in the American city today. Nevertheless, you know, we might want to think about kind of like what, what that vision is relative to, to other kinds of representation. Yeah, I mean, I think that film, the tone, the sound, the image in a way has has a it offers a real possibility for us to get into people's psyches so that their inner thoughts their inner fragilities and so for me the the, the poignancy of personhood particularly um, in revealing Jimmy and and his struggles and his constant kind of battling against injury is really pronounced but I think where both films are really extraordinary as well, is that there's this this background echo, uh, particularly in in the case of San Francisco, of the endurance of a deindustrialized city. So we we kind of call the city something else now. We don't really refer to an industrial logic, but that logic is very prevalent, and it's very prevalent in the lives that it ha it did dislodge and that it continues to dislodge structurally. I also think film is really successful because unlike academic writing, it can push proximities, uncomfortable proximities up close and we can see 
the jarring of the different ways in which people are positioned and the different ways in which people occupy uh, a citizenship or a denizenship. So I think, you know, these uncomfortable moments in the film where the, the hairs go up on the back of your neck because of, of the inability of whiteness to comprehend other people's pain is, is just absolutely acute. So there, there is something about the film that is, it's the, the interior minds of people, it's the uncomfortable set of emotions that it brings to the fore, it's the echoes of the past that are so prevalent today. Uh, all of these things, I think, are immensely cinematic, very hard to achieve in other forms. I don't think you can have a conversation about these two films without remarking on um, the, the complete disappearance of what you might call sort of Latinx Patterson or San Francisco. You know, the, the fact that Patterson is an overwhelmingly Latinx city, um, Puerto Rican, Dominican, Peruvian, Colombian, Mexican, and everybody knows about um, sort of San Francisco's important um, relationship to Mexico and Central America. And yet, I think, interestingly, not, that doesn't figure in, in either film. And of course, I'm as somebody who, who works a lot in that part of the world. That surprised me. And except for in the film Patterson, there's an occasional view of a campaign poster of Patterson's former um, Puerto Rican mayor. And, but yet, you know, that fact that the kind of racial politics, the cultural politics, the, the forms of um, both tension and conviviality that exist in, in both cities and in both films kind of takes place through a, not necessarily, I wouldn't call it a binary racial logic, but certainly a racial logic that surprisingly to me um, removes that incredibly important dimension from, from the conversation. And, and that's the relationship to, um, to Latin America, to, to Central America, to the Caribbean, um, which is, is, is quite important to, to both cities. Mm. That's a fascinating point as well, and a quite a crucial one as we're seeing in the kind of politics um, we're seeing now with um, Biden and Trump, uh, the racial politics there, where we're seeing the um, Latin American vote being the kind of um, absent feature within uh, the, the binaries of race and some of the consequence of those. And um, it was an observation that I actually didn't make myself, so I'm really kind of grateful you kind of pointed it out and um, what the implications are of that in thinking around the, the city as a binary space where different identities are often very, very much siloed. And where do other identities sit in between that as well? I think that's a fantastic um, perspective to conclude on what's been um, a fascinating discussion. I want to thank Susie and Austin for their amazing contributions um, to this discussion. There is something immensely powerful around the cinematic rendering of um, the social environment, the urban space that still speaks to these questions of racial inequality, racial displacement, and um, the structural dissonance we're seeing in people's responses to them that are highly racialized and highly privileged as well. So it's been a huge pleasure to listen to you both in your perspectives as well. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Clive. Really appreciate the invitation to, to chat with you and to be on that. Thank you to both Susie and Austin for their fantastic contributions to this podcast episode. What we have in these two films, Patterson, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, is an interesting negotiation of urban transformation in the multiracial 
American city. On the one hand, in Patterson, we have a white racial identity that is allowed to walk seamlessly through the city, unassumed and uncontested. Whereas in The Last Black Man in San Francisco, we have our two black central characters whose position and place and relevance in the city is constantly challenged, constantly made to be proven, and is always on the edge of the mainstream of social, cultural, and economic life. This points to the use of film as a powerful method for understanding race in the American city. That's it for this episode of The Politics of Race in American Film. This podcast is a production by The Ballpark, the LSE US Center's podcast for understanding American politics. This episode was produced by Chris Gilson, Michaela Herman, and myself, Dr. Clive Nwonka. The Politics of Race in American Film is supported by the LSE's Knowledge Exchange and Impact Fund. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the US Center or the London School of Economics. To find out more about the LSE US Centre and our work, you can go to lse.ac.uk forward slash united states or follow us on Twitter at LSE underscore US. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.